this episode, David Gordon, professor of history at Bowdoin College, traces his current research interests all the way back to his upbringing. You start off with some questions that are motivated by one's own background and my background as a South African interested in this culture that I was very much separated from during apartheid. His recent work takes a new perspective on a famous Central African myth called the Landa Love Story and some statues made of the characters in the Landa Love Story. The statues were created by groups that were supposedly opposing the Lunda and fighting a war against them. And that helped me conceptualize the oral tradition as a peace treaty. In my conversation with Professor Gordon, he describes the process of studying art and oral tradition alongside archival sources to explore 19th century political transformation in Central Africa. We discuss the power of objects and storytelling and what we can learn about colonial history from museums, both what they display and what they store away. Bowden presents David Gordon. I wanted to start by asking you about the Lunda love story that you've been researching and writing about. And the Lunda love story is one of the better known legends in Central Africa. And I'll just try to recap it very briefly here. It's it's a beautiful story about how one leader was so disappointed in his sons that he decided to make his daughter, Luigi, the heir of his throne instead. And he does that by giving her a bracelet as a symbol of this uh, rule. And one day she meets a strong and beautiful stranger bathing in the river. She falls for him and she convinces the elders of her community to sanction their marriage even though he's an outsider. And then she gives him the bracelet and signal that now he is the ruler. And now, besides, you know, this being a beautiful love story, and who doesn't want to spend their days thinking about that, what drew you to studying this legend? I mean, the Linda love story has been already studied from different perspectives and disciplines before, but what has been your lens on it? Well, I was first exposed to such legends, and sometimes they refer to as oral traditions, um, about 30 years ago when visiting and doing field work in Zambia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And at that point, I was familiar with documents and writings, especially colonial writings about the Lunda, but I hadn't heard them tell their history in their own words. And once I began to do, uh, began to hear that and hear people tell these histories, I came to appreciate how important narratives and, and legends about the past were and how different conceptions of history function. And I began to try to interpret these legends. There are many different ones and many variations of this Lunda love story. In a sense, there are many love stories across South Central Africa. But the Lunda love story and the love story between Chibinda Ilunga, the Luba hero, and Luwej, the Lunda heroine, is one of the best known or is the central myth, if you like, or central legend um, of the region. So I'd often imagine myself trying to unravel 
the meanings of this. There are two ways that the legend has been interpreted before. One is by historians who are looking for historical facts. Did Luej and Chibinde Lunga actually live? When did they live? And there are various interpretations. Um, the pioneers of Africanist historiography tried to date this unification back to the 17th century, in other words, the 1600s. On the other hand, anthropologists treated the oral tradition or the legend more as a, a set of cultural symbols that did not have historical veracity as such. And um, they developed rich interpretations associating the union of Luej and Chibinde Lunga with the powers of fertility and fecundity that uh, underpinned the Lunda kingdom. As I researched the Lunda and these narratives, starting around 30 years ago, I came to realize that they were entwined with a system of trade that covered the South Central African savannah. And many of the local leaders, who are called title holders, they held titles, wrote themselves into the story, became part of the story. And I discovered that the story was not so much necessarily about the past or about cultural norms or generalities, but about specific way alliances that were formed and additions to the narrative that were formed through these alliances. And that became my interpretive strategy for these legends, and it's the one that I applied most recently to this uh, legend of, of Chibinde Lunga and Luej. That's so interesting. So this love story also holds a lot of power and and negotiating power. Exactly. And I, I, I think it became especially popular in the late 19th century when there was a lot of conflict and war in the region. And to a certain extent, the Lunda love story was a sort of peace treaty between different groups by articulating their position within the Lunda love story, whether it be the brothers of Luej who left because they were jealous of the newcomer Chibinde Lunga or the relations between Chibinde Lunga and the title holders associated with him and Luej. And it all formed one family that actually had represented people in different parts and, and far-flung parts of South Central Africa, parts of South Central Africa that extend uh, literally thousands of miles from Angola in the west to Zambia or to the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia. In studying an old legend like the Lunda love story, that sounds like the kind of work that I imagine a historian would be engaging in. But the Lunda love story is also connected to a different part of your research that doesn't take texts and narrative as its starting point. Can you tell us a little bit about your other recent research? Well, as a historian of Africa or a historian of a part of Africa where prior to 1880 there was not much writing, there was some, and um, especially in the Portuguese areas, uh, where 
long-standing traders and African traders were writing in Portuguese or had learned uh, to write and were writing in their own languages, actually. So there are, there are some. But for the most part, those are limited and limited to a certain section of the population. Um, so one looks to legend and oral tradition, but other forms that might remain from that period, and art objects are one of them. And I suppose one of the entry points for investigating art objects for me were some famous statues created or depicting um, this hero Chibinda Ilunga. And what was nice about these statues was that we could date their provenance to the late 19th century when this legend was being recorded and we know it was being told at the time. And that's not always that common for African art objects to have a good sense of provenance, place and time when they are um, collected or taken or however you want to see it. So I became fascinated by these statues. What was especially fascinating to me at first was that the statues were created by groups that were supposedly opposing the Lunda and fighting a war against them. And that helped me conceptualize the oral tradition as a peace treaty that was being told between warring parties. So were the, these statues also fitted into this idea of a, a developing common ties between warring groups. So uh, the Chibinda Lunga figurines were some of the first and uh, that I began to investigate, and they still form a central piece of my investigations. But I, I also discovered that many other objects served to depict forms of sovereignty, of power, and were used in negotiations between peoples at the time. And uh, some of these objects survive in museum collections today. And what do they look like? I'm sure these objects differ, but there also seems to be some replicas of the same figure within the legend. Could you describe one of these objects for me? It's a struggle to describe them, in part because when I first saw photographs of the object, I had certain impressions of them. And it was an amazing experience being able to go into the museums and the storage departments of museums, because these objects are not on display, and actually sit there with objects and handle them and look at, up close at them and realize how they were made and manufactured, which is something you can only do with really uh, feeling an object and sort of sitting for a few moments with it and trying to get the impression of uh, what the carver intended as uh, they made this object. The Chibinde Lunga figurines emphasize the qualities of a hunter, uh, a hunter and someone who brings people together. Chibinde Lunga literally means the hunter who brings people together. He has strong and powerful legs and arms. His masculinity is evident. He looks at you with penetrating eyes as if he can sort of see into your, into, into your being. He is accompanied by spiritual guides on either side and sometimes on his crown and his head who are probably telling him where, where the animals are. He seems adept at what he's doing. He is poised for movement. And he has all the features of status. He's often bearded. He is with a very typical crown. Um, he is with 
bracelets that signify power and rule. He is often holding a rifle, uh, which is the prized object of, of men of the late 19th century. You were sort of sitting with these figurines and thinking about what the carver would, you know, was trying to get at. So what material are they carved from? They are carved from hardwood and they are heavy. So, and they were meant to stand and be shown as such. I don't think they were meant to be hidden away or be secretive as some other objects we imagine some objects uh, were. These were meant to be displayed. Then you mentioned that they currently aren't being displayed. Now, why is that? Portuguese museums and Portuguese museums fall under several different categories. There are museums associated with universities and then there are museums associated with towns and museums associated with the National Museum Association. So it's difficult to generalize. But insofar as we can, they are terribly underfunded and they target areas that attract tourists. These museums don't even have the security personnel to open the museums a few days a week. Um, the objects, uh, I think, I don't think he would mind me saying, but had to be shown to me by the actual director of the museum um, himself because there's no curator to uh, display these objects. So funding is fundamental in this. I became very interested in one Chibinde Lunga and this, the sort of colonial history of this Chibinde Lunga, which is interesting in so, uh, regarding the questions about provenance and restitution. This Chibinde Lunga was collected by the, 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 the most, the sort of doyen of anthropology and archaeology in Portugal in the early uh, 1910s, who established what became the National Museum of Archaeology in, in Portugal, which sits next to the Geronimo Monastery in Belém, an area that is visited by many tourists. And this museum is a prominent place for tourists to go. It doesn't hold much African art, but it holds this particular piece. It was acquired in the 1910s under a situation that was difficult to establish where or when or why it actually came into the collection. But we know it's of a, a great antiquity. In the 1930s, it was displayed as part of Portuguese displaying the pride of their African colonies. This was another moment in Portuguese colonialism when Portugal, like the British were doing at the time, began to see themselves as the guardians of African culture. And so they started representing African art in their prominent museums like this. It was represented for a few decades. It was so important to the museum that they made a postcard of it and it was sold at the main counter. But in the 1970s, just after the revolution in Portugal that led to the decolonization of the Portuguese empire, this statue went missing. And we, it, it went missing, or we found out about it going missing in a strange way. An American art collector, prominent West Coast art collector from Los Angeles, contacted an art historian, Marie-Louise Bastin, a well-known art historian, with images of this figure. She looked at the images and said, this is awfully similar to one that I've studied and that my husband has taken photographs of because her husband was her photographer. But it's missing some features, some, some of those spiritual guides that I spoke about have been cut off. It looks a little different. 
So she said, well, just in case, I'm going to write to my anthropology friend in Lisbon. She was in Belgium at the time. And see that the statue is still where it's supposed to be in the National Museum of Archaeology. So her anthropologist friend went, walked down to the National Museum and found that the statue was gone. (laughs) Right from the display case where it was shown. (laughs) And um, this led to a long process of the restitution of this object to the Portuguese National Museum of Archaeology. The Museum of Archaeology was somewhat ashamed of what happened, uh, for understandable reasons. And this shame might be one of the reasons why the object is so rarely displayed. I think 30 years afterwards, we are getting beyond that, but uh, or the Portuguese museum community is at least. But what the story also illustrates is how the art dealer, and we could track the art dealers involved here, disguised the provenance of a piece to sell it to an American collector for the considerable sum. I think it was about $30,000 in the 1970s, which was quite a lot. (laughs) And the fact of not knowing where it came from, but resembling a masterpiece that this art historian had written about, or that art historian gave it this value. Wow. Well, I'm glad that this sleuthing had a, a positive outcome and it's now back in its holdings. But it is back in Portuguese it's museums. It's back in Portuguese hands. It yeah. is not back in, in Angola. Angola where it originated. Right. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, why you have chosen to study these objects in Portugal rather than in Central Africa. Why is that? So... The statues are in European museums, not only Portuguese museums, but Germany has one of the most prominent ones. And in fact, the German Humboldt Forum has embarked on a restitution project of one of these Chiminde Lunga statues. It's not an easy restitution to make in the context of current Angolan politics. The area where they're from in eastern Angola is in a state of semi-rebellion against the central authorities. Hence, who do you restitute it to? And what is the symbol of an international power, another power, giving an object from an oppressed community to the, the central power, or vice versa? So it's involved in a political reckoning right now. So you're not just studying one of these sculptures or power objects, you're studying a whole archive. Why is that? What do you get out of looking at a group uh, or an archive that you wouldn't understand by studying one sculpture in depth? Well, when you look at one sculpture, it's difficult to extract meaning except by comparing them with a range of different objects and by placing them in a context of production, thinking about the materials that were produced by similar objects or at least by similar artists, the styles. So when I look at an object, it's by placing them within a whole range of objects. And that's why I use the term an archive of objects, because for me as a historian, a document outside of the context of the whole collection of documents, loses a great deal of meaning. And I found that this was the case when looking at objects as well. A singular object, when I couldn't consider 
related objects or objects created by the same artists lost a great deal of meaning, or at least I couldn't understand them as well. I couldn't understand why they were created in certain ways. I couldn't understand the figures uh, that appeared on uh, objects. I couldn't understand why masks were represented in this way, or if a mask was being represented on, say, a throne or a chair or in a figurine without studying both the mask and the figurine. And the, you know, um, So objects gain meanings within broader context within their collections and that is what is so exciting of course what's also exciting is that you get to reflect on these bigger questions of what collections are and what functions collections have especially if collections are not displayed and this is the sad case of the situation in 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 portugal presently they're not only not displayed, but because with the archival documents, an archivist can bring a document to you and you can sit in a reading room with that document with several others, objects aren't as mobile. You can't be left alone with objects. Well, sometimes I was, but <laughs> it's not desirable to let you know researchers loose with objects as such. So it, it requires greater person power to to monitor these collections. So what are we doing with these collections? These collections are vast. Actually, they are far vaster in other areas, ethnographic museums or museums of anthropology in Europe and in the United States. But in Portugal alone, you know, the Museum of Ethnography with tens of thousands of objects in storage. What's the purpose? You know, so it allows me to reflect on that as well. You know, you've been speaking a lot about your research and, and the how and the why but I'm going to go back to you and poke a little bit deeper. What is the why? Why is this research uh, something that compels you and draws you back to it? And, and what are you trying to answer here? To answer that question, I have to go very deep into my soul. Uh, you start off with some questions that are motivated by one's own background and my background as a South African interested in this culture that I was very much separated from during apartheid. And as I got to know more of it and learn more and open my eyes and my senses to it, I became more and more fascinated. And I would say that's where I stood about 30 years ago. Since then, I've just been digging a deeper and deeper hole into this <laughs> into this uh, source of fascination. I'm not sure if that was the right metaphor. But um, I do hope, I'm, I'm interested in the Lunda love story uh, and in the histories it tells uh, and the histories these objects tells because I think they are part of our world historical heritage and need to be told and need to be published. Um, I think the work does have political repercussions. That's not my immediate interest or uh, it's not that I'm not interested. It's not, it's, it's not my immediate inspiration. I think Chokwe people, Angolan people could read what this outsider writes and think, wow, we have some significance in an American university. 
that's great. Uh, look, Chibinde Lunga is in Portugal still. Maybe we should make him visit here again or, or even bring him back. You know, so I think there are unintended uh, consequences and desirable ones, hopefully, that uh, the work will ultimately have. David Gordon, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Bowdoin Presents. Thank you.